Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Ponte Vista, Colorado. This morning, we're going to be talking about the uh, the Torah portion is bow. And what's interesting about the word bow, bow can mean come or go. And that's why the Israelites didn't know if they were coming or going half the time while they were wandering around. But let's do a little review. Let's go ahead and put up our first clip. This is the locusts. This is what's left. Last week, as we were going through the different plagues, a somewhat, uh, this week's tour portion, we covered the locusts. Uh, we also have the darkness. It was great darkness. If you remember, Egypt, it was totally dark, but Israel still had light in their dwellings. And then finally, we have the death of the firstborn. And so where I want to start right now on your notes is with Exodus 10, verse 1 and 2, where our Torah portion begins. And it says, Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh. And I'm just going to bring a little side note here. Because it can also say, Come. Uh, some of the people like the idea of come into Pharaoh rather than go to Pharaoh. And they say that might be a better translation. Because when it says go to Pharaoh, it's like God is standing here, Pharaoh's over there, God tells Moses, you go to Pharaoh. But when he says come to Pharaoh, God is saying, look, you're coming with me to Pharaoh. So it's not like God is over here and he's sending Moses to Pharaoh. God is saying, why don't you come to Pharaoh? In other words, you're coming with me. You're not going to be doing this alone. He says, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. And that, now this is going to be incredible. I'm going to read this kind of slow, and then we're going to just spend a little while talking about this verse. Uh, Because when we read it too fast, we miss things. Listen to what it says. It says, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son, The mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Okay, well, in the verse we just read, the Torah charges parents with the obligation to retell the story of the Exodus to their children and their grandchildren, right? Well, curiously, the verse ends with that you may know that I am God. The purpose of the retelling the story is presumably to strengthen the faith of our kids and grandkids. It would seem more appropriate to conclude by saying that they, your children, may know that I am God. How come it says, I want you to tell your children and grandchildren so that you know that I'm God? Think about that. You would think it should, in proper English anyway, you would think it would be saying, I want you to tell them so they may know. Well, the commandment to educate our children is discussed in the Shema that we just got done saying. There the verse states, and you shall teach. And what are they referring to when it says you shall teach? It's Torah. You shall teach Torah to them while you sit in your house, right? While you walk on the way. It doesn't say while they sit in their house and while they walk on the way. It says so you can teach your children when you Arise when you lie down. So here as well, the question begs to be asked, if the goal is teaching our children to discuss or study Torah at all times, wouldn't it be more appropriate for the verse to say, and you shall teach Torah to your children while they sit in your home, while they walk on the way, when they lie down, and when they rise? Wouldn't that make more sense? Well, here's the thing. It's not about what we say. It's about who we are and what we do. 
Our effectiveness in educating children about morals, about faith, about Torah, will only be effective if we have first trained ourselves. If we as parents don't act as role models for the standards we wish to impart to our children, all of our efforts will be in vain. If we are not honest, our children will be dishonest. If we are not respectful to others, our children will not be respectful to others. If we're not careful about the words that we use or the tone in which we express ourselves, our children will likewise do the same. So we must genuinely live the lessons we intend to impart before we can expect our children to do so. Does that make sense? This is why the first step is that you may know that I am God. Only once you've internalized the faith can you pass it on to the next generation. This concept is in the Shema, where it says, hear and what? Hear and obey. So if you want to teach your children Torah, don't tell them to just discuss Torah thoughts. Rather, ask them what they saw and heard you do when you were at home, when you were traveling on the road, both in the evening and in the morning. Interesting, isn't it? Your children will pick up from your example how they should act. How many of you know private schools are expensive? Listen to this. There was a high school principal of a private Jewish high school. He made the following interesting observation after hearing a parent lie about his child's age at an amusement park. Here this parent, this is what he said. Here this parent spends thousands of dollars a year in tuition to give his children a Jewish education. Along with calculus, chemistry, he expects the school to impart lessons in ethics and values. Yet here he's willing to undo a $10,000 education to save five bucks. I don't get it. Interesting. All that we can get out of a few verses in the Torah of when it says, when you sit down, that you may know. Teach your children. Because we're supposed to be teaching through our actions, not through our, just our words. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, uh, this goes back to what Art was just sharing earlier. It says, The Lord spoken to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It'll be the first month of the year to you. So this is where the, the religious calendar was to begin. Let's take a look here at this next clip. That cute little lamb. In Exodus 12:3, it says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, The tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now, so everyone was to take a lamb for a house. And then in verse 4, this is what it says. If the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating till you make your account for the lamb. Okay, now how many of you uh, know what the classic number is according to Halakha? What? How many is it supposed to be? How many people per lamb? Do you remember? Ten. Correct. Okay, so in other words, if you only had four people in your house, your neighbors had six, ten, that way everyone could at least get a little bit of the, uh, the food. Now, here's, the, here's my question. How many lambs at this first Passover, the very first one while they're still in Egypt, how many lambs did they have to kill and put the blood on the doorposts? Okay, well, 
Let's look at Exodus 12:37. It says, The children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot. Let me go to this next clip. I think I've got a few more lambs. Not as many lambs as we're going to see, but some cute little lambs. But listen to Exodus 12:37. It says, The children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 on foot that were men. And this is besides the women and the children. Well, do you realize that means there were 60,000 lambs killed just for the men? You got to take another 60,000 just about if you were to count all the women and children, the whole families. There, there was, well, probably close to 200,000 lambs killed that night in Egypt. As a matter of fact, many of you are familiar with this, but Josephus recorded, uh, and he lived during the time of the Messiah, roughly. And he said at Passover, there were roughly two and a half million Jews would come for the feast. And at 10 per lamb, uh, he literally said they would kill 250,000 lambs in one day. But I want to jump back again to the very first Passover in the Exodus when they killed several hundred thousand lambs. Look at Exodus 12, verse 12 and 13. Here, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite who? Who's he going to smite? All of the firstborn. Was that just the firstborn of the Egyptians? That included the firstborn of the Jews, didn't it? How about the firstborn of the animals? Okay. He says, I'm going to smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But here he says, against all the gods of Egypt, he's executing judgment. And then he says this, I am the Lord. Now let's put up this next clip here. <clears throat> this is uh, Dom, the Dalet Mem in Hebrew is blood. The letter He is the word the. Hebrew is right to left. So here you have Hadam, which is the blood. Everyone following me there? Okay, not going too fast. Now look at what it says. It says, against all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment, and I the Lord, I am the Lord. And then he says, and the blood, this is Hadam, this is how it's written in the Torah. And the blood will be to you for a sign. And I think it's interesting. This is on your notes. I don't have it in the PowerPoint at this time. But the Hebrew word for sign is made up of basically three letters. The Aleph, Vav, and Tav. But here the Vav is missing. Uh, and it's just the Aleph, Tav. Well, the Aleph, Tav, which I think is very exciting, represents God. Right? The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. So here it's saying, the word sign here is missing the Vav. It's just the Aleph Tav. But then look at what it says. And it says, uh, it will be to you for a sign upon the houses where you are. And then he says, and when I see the blood. Well, here's what's fascinating. This time when he says, I, when you see the blood, it's not just had, uh, Hadam. It is Aleph Tav Hadam. So it's God's blood that's being put on the doorpost It's representative of this is another one of those situations where the Aleph Tav is brought into the sentence. And as I said, the Aleph Tav represents God. So I think it's interesting the first time the Aleph Tav is missing. And now it's putting emphasis twice, once by using the Hebrew word for sign being just the Aleph Tav. And then it's again, it's the Aleph Tav. In other words, this is representative or symbolic of Messiah's blood who would be shed a couple thousand years later. And then he says, I will pass over you and the plague will not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now in Genesis chapter 22, we're going to go back here for a minute. And let's look at verse 2. In Genesis 22, 2, God tells Abraham, and he said, take now your son, your only son, 
Isaac. Now, when you think a minute, who was Abraham his firstborn son? Well, how come it says your only son here then? Uh, Ishmael, he also, Ishmael's one of his sons. Okay. Now, the Isaac obviously was his firstborn through Sarah. But this is also is talking about preeminence. So in one sense, Isaac is representative as a firstborn. Right here it says, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Get to the land of Moriah, offer him there for an offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Now, how many of you know Isaac is a type of the Messiah? Especially when it comes to the Akedah, the, the whole sacrifice of Abraham and Isaac, and then the ram was caught in the thicket. I don't know how many of you knew this, but they say Isaac was literally born on Passover. And you see that. I, I can prove that to you pretty much. But Isaac was born on Passover. Now, let's go to this next little clip here. Here we get the ram caught in the thicket. We know the story in Genesis twenty-two thirteen. It says, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold him, and behold, behind him there was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Okay, so this whole concept here of a substitution as an offering is coming into play. Here, instead of Isaac being offered up, there was a ram that was substituted. Now, it is reasonable to assume that when the children of Israel were commanded to offer up a lamb or a goat on the afternoon of that first Passover in Egypt on the 14th day of the first month, that they made the obvious and immediate association with Isaac's ram and understood the upcoming sacrifice to be some sort of substitution offering. Okay, after all, they've heard this story having been handed down through four generations now, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, okay, to all the children of Israel. Believe me, they knew the story of Isaac being born on Passover. They knew the story of Abraham wanting to, I mean, can you imagine telling your grandkids, you know, great-grandpa tried to offer up Joe, you know, or whatever, you know, uncle. They're like, oh my goodness, this is what a story to tell. So believe me, they all knew the whole concept of substitution. Okay, they knew Isaac was born on Passover. They knew the story and the concept of a ram being substituted for Isaac. Now, let me ask you something. Did every Israelite have to worry or just the firstborn? Okay, well, here comes something that's kind of shocking on another level. We know when it came to the children of Israel, only the firstborn, right? But here's something I saw. Look at this. Exodus 4.22. From the beginning. You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. All of Israel is God's firstborn. So all of Israel had to worry about it. Isn't that interesting? Yes, they weren't all firstborn in the natural, but they were all firstborn when it came to God's eyes in the spiritual. And that's why he even, when he told Pharaoh, you better let him go or I will slay your son, even your firstborn, he meant literally all the firstborn of Egypt, not just Pharaoh's firstborn. And so here we need to see that even though not all the Israelites were in the flesh the firstborn, all of the Israelites, according to the God's Torah, were firstborns. So they all had to worry about it. Exodus 12.5 I think it's interesting In the first verse we looked at 
it said each man shall take a lamb for a house, but now it's changed from a lamb to your lamb. They've had this house, the, the lamb uh, in their house for four days. Now that it's gotten real personal, it's real cute. The kids are playing with it and it's no longer just a lamb. Now it's your lamb. But it says your lamb will be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you're to take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And then in verse 6 it says you're to keep it till the 14th day of the same month and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill what? How, how come it is there were several hundred thousand lambs killed? How come it didn't say the whole congregation of Israel shall kill them? Okay, well... Well, wait a minute. Again, what's going on here? How come it doesn't say the whole congregation will, will kill all of them? No, it says kill it. Okay. It's to, we also see that it's to be taken from the flock. The use of a member of the flock is particularly powerful in its symbolic association. Not only is their leader, Moses, a shepherd by profession, as we see in Exodus 3.1, Moses kept the flock of Jethro. Okay. But also, Moses compares the children of Israel to a flock in need of a shepherd after his death, that we see in Numbers 27, verse 15 through 17. It says, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, which may go in before them, which may lead them out, which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. So here we see the entire congregation is considered the firstborn. They're compared to a flock. One lamb is to be taken out of the flock to die as a representation for the whole group. Okay. So here we have symbolically one lamb who is to be taken from the flock of Israel on Passover to be sacrificed, bringing redemption for the whole nation of Israel. Did you catch that? Well, look at Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is done so he opened not his mouth so here we see Messiah is the one lamb that is representative of the whole flock the, all the lambs of Israel let's go to this next clip and I think it's interesting here this is Isaiah 53 in Hebrew uh, those, these very verses I was just reading and I want you to notice <clears throat> right here is the word Shem, which is name, you add the Yud, that becomes my name, and underneath you have Yeshua is my name. And this is in the Hebrew text, which is kind of interesting. In just a minute we're going to talk about the plagues, but I want to bring out a verse in Revelation twelve eleven. It says, They overcame him through the blood of the Lamb, and the word of their witness, having not loving not their lives. Uh, they freely gave themselves up to death. Now let me ask you something. When it came to the sign, the blood is the sign on the doorpost. Did God really need a sign? Did he need some kind of a tracking system so he would know who was inside? So why did he need to have them mark the houses with the blood? Was it for his sake or for their sake? <clears throat> Let's take a look here through some quick clips. These are some of the different plagues. But a lot of people don't realize that all the plagues, as we just read in Exodus 12, 12, were against the different gods of Egypt. So I'm just going to run through them real quick here. For, uh, this is uh, the quote where he says, against all the gods of Egypt, will I execute judgment. I am the Lord. And so let's take a look at some of them here. Uh, 
Happy was known as the Nile God. And so what did God do? He turned the Nile into blood, which symbolized the death of this particular God. That's why the Nile turned to blood. And Happy probably wasn't too happy about that. Okay. Then we have uh, the next was the plague of frogs. There was a frog god uh, known as Hecate. Uh, because uh, the Egyptians saw that there were many frogs who all would be coming out of the Nile, they associated the frog with fertility and resurrection. So here the Nile turns to blood, and then all of a sudden you have all this whole plague of frogs. God says, you like frogs? I'll give you frogs. <clears throat> then we have uh, Geb, was known as the god of the earth, the god of dirt. Okay, well, earthquakes were believed to be the laughter of Geb. And we find here that what did God do? He, tur he turned the dust into lice. Okay, so he the plague of dust into lice. And then what do we have? Shu was uh, the god of the dry air, the atmosphere, the wind. Uh, he is the one who supposedly held the sky off of the earth, allowing life to flourish in Egypt with his breath of life. And so what does God do? He says, so you're supposed to protect the atmosphere you know, protect everyone from this, and he brings these plagues of insects. Uh, then we have Apis, who was the uh, the bull, was proclaimed to be a god incarnate, and uh, he symbolized the king's courageous heart, great strength, virility, fighting spirit. And so, since the bull was a god, he brought the pestilence on all of the cattle and the livestock. Okay, then we have Heka. Heka was the uh, god of magic and medicine. Uh, to the ancient Egyptians, they were really the one and the same. It was symbolic of a man carrying a magic staff and a knife, which was the tools of a healer. So God says, okay, give you some boils, heal this, guys. And then we have Nut, uh, which was the god of the firmament who protected man from the heavens. So what did God do? He brought down hailstones. We have uh, Min. Min uh, was uh, the god of the harvest. Okay, the Egyptian harvest festival in Egypt uh, was the celebration of the springtime harvest. It was dedicated to men, their god of vegetation and fertility. So what does God do? He brings in the locusts to destroy their crops. <clears throat> then we have Ra. Ra was the Egyptian sun god. And he was supposed to be the one who brought life. And so what does God do? He brings in the plague of darkness. Okay, then we have the death of the firstborn. Okay. Now, I'm going to talk about this here more in just a minute, but I wanted us to go back to our notes for a moment. And let's look at Exodus 8, 25 through 27. Here it says, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said, Go and make your offering to your God here in Egypt, basically. And Moses said, Well, it's not right for us to do so. For we make our offerings of that to which the Egyptians give worship. So what is he saying? The Egyptians worship the lamb god. Okay? And if we go kill 200,000 lambs, what are the Egyptians going to do to us when they see us killing 200,000 of their lamb gods? They're not going to be happy. He says, if we do so before their eyes, we're going to be stoned. We can't be killing 200,000 lambs. Okay? See, Moses hadn't got the word yet in Exodus 8. Find the truth on Solace Radio. He says, but we're going to go three days journey into the waste land and make an offering to the Lord our God as he may give us orders. Well, we see in Genesis 46, verse 34, here's when Joseph is receiving all of his brothers now into Egypt for the first time. 
And uh, it says, here's what I want you to say, that your servant's trade has been about cattle from our youth even until now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Okay, especially because they go around killing their lamb god all the time. Now let's look at Exodus 12, 7 through 9. Here now God is informing Moses, okay, here's what we're going to do, guys. You know that lamb god of theirs, that's an abomination, and you don't want to kill them in their presence? Guess what? You're going to do it anyway. He says, I want you to take some of the blood and put it on the two sides of the door and over the door of the house where the meal is to be taken, and let your food that night be the flesh of the lamb, cooked with fire in the oven, together with unleavened bread and bitter-tasting plants. Do not take it uncooked or cooked with boiling water, but let it be cooked in the oven, its head with its legs and its inside parts. In other words, I don't want you to take this lamb and cut it up in little pieces and pass it off as something else. I want them to know that you are killing their lamb god. Now think about this for a moment. Let me go to this next clip. Another god was Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra was believed to have been the creator or the maker of man. Okay, so here we have the plague of the death of the firstborn of man. So this is a like an Egyptian deity here, guys. So they understood the ram or the lamb to be a god. <clears throat> to the Egyptians, the killing of a lamb was a desecration of their religion. How many of you know today, don't, you don't want to offend the Muslims? Well, believe me, it was like it back then, and they are definitely offending them. The Egyptians. This was a desecration of their religion. You know how everyone's afraid of the Muslims, and I'm not saying going around and offend the Muslims, but my point is this. You know how people are afraid. Don't do anything that's going to offend the Allah. That's why they don't mind trashing Judaism. They don't mind trashing Christianity. But they don't want to trash Islam, right? Well, that's the same thing that was going on then. And here they're in the Islamic land, but we won't call it Islamic because Islam didn't exist until around 600 AD. But they're, list, they're living in this pagan land in Egypt, and they're about to do something that is very offensive. Okay? This was the Passover sacrifice was a direct challenge to their God. Now, here's the amazing thing. Do you remember Passover is on what day? The 14th day. The next day, the 15th day of the month, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, as Art was saying, you want to be on the right calendar. If you don't know this, you're missing a whole bunch of what's going on at the Passover. Do you realize, because the biblical calendar is based on the new moon, it is a full moon when they're killing the Passover lambs. Okay, so they can't even hide it in the dark. It's all lit up. Now, how many of you, let me ask you this, have had a... Well, first, let me point this out. April, roughly April, Nissan 15, in the constellations, it's the ram. And they believe the lamb god was at its greatest strength, the apex of its power at the full moon. So it is at the very time when Aries is in the sky, it's a full moon, their lamb god is supposed to be at the apex of his power, that that's when they decided to kill them all. Alright, now let me ask you something. How many of you like a barbecue? I'm serious, I like a barbecue. How many of you, when your neighbors are barbecuing, can tell it? Alright, now think about this for a minute. Here, God is telling the Israelites, I want you to cook it outside. I want them to smell your barbecue. I want 200,000 lambs just wafting all over Egypt. We're killing your God. And then not only that, 
When you're done, I want you to take the blood and put it on the outside doorpost so they know which house even killed their God. Talk about advertising. You can imagine how they were probably scared. So this is what God is saying. Basically, the devil tries to steal everything. He's not original. He's a copycat. And God is saying, I have the Lamb of God, and it's mine and not yours. Amen? In Exodus 12, let's look at verse 14. God says, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you'll keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You'll keep it by a, a feast, by an ordinance forever. Tell you what, it's that time. So we're going to stop here. I don't know if we're going to get everything covered, but we're going to, we'll go fast. Did I go too fast this first half? About good pace? Okay, well, let's stand and let's pray. Avinu Mokenu, our Father, our King, we just thank you so much for your people, for your Torah, for your word, for insights into your word. Your, your word truly is forever. We just thank you so much for it. We thank you that you have created us for such a time as this. You have put us, we could have lived in any age of history or any time, but you wanted each one of us to be here at this time to fulfill a mission, to fulfill a purpose. So God, I pray each one of us would realize our ultimate mission here in life uh, while we're to enjoy life. But we were put here for a mission, Father, to fulfill your kingdom. And we can do that in many ways. And God, I thank you so much that you have given us life at this time, that we can help take your Torah to all the nations of the world. This was your goal from the beginning. This is why you created Israel, was that they would be a light to the nations. And you've given us the ability to take Yeshua, the light of the Torah, to all the nations. We thank you for that opportunity. Father, any uh, tithes or offerings that are coming in, we pray that they would bless you in allowing us to continue to glorify your name and lift your name up higher and higher and higher. Together, blessed are you, Lord our God, creator and king of the universe. You have blessed us with your Torah of truth. You have blessed us with the whole counsel of your living word by the power of your Holy Spirit through the completed work of Messiah Yeshua. You alone have planted among us life eternal. Blessed are you, Lord our God. You know what's amazing to me? I mean, God, when you think about who he is, his, his name, you know, God is what? Holy, holy, holy. Can you see how set apart God is from the rest of us? Is there anything that is exalted higher than his name? There is. God says, I've exalted my word even above my name. Your name is only as good as your word. If you keep your word, you have your name. So that tells us God's going to keep his word to the nation of Israel. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so that also really elevates God's word phenomenally. And that's why we can't just arbitrarily decide we're the ones who can chop, chop things out of his word. We're the ones who think we can add to his word. I mean, when you start taking things away, saying they're done away with, or you start adding your own man-made traditions, you're, and when you see how holy he has exalted his word, even above his name, man, that's why I am the last one to say this is done away with, or this has been added, because I am not God's editor. Amen? <laughs> Any of you God's editor? <laughs> I hope not. 
Uh, but anyway, one thing we like to do at this time is welcome our visitors. If you're visiting here for the very first time, would you raise your hands so we can give you a gift? All right, I see a hand in the back there and over there and over there. We always like to find out where you're from. Where are you from? Federal Way. All right. Great to have visitors from Federal Way. And where are you from back there? Lake Taps. All right. That's where our offices are up there on Bonnie Lake. Where are you from? Over here. Bonnie Lake. Woo! Bonnie Lake. I love having our offices right there on 410. Everyone can see it. Over here. Auburn. What? Gig Harbor. Okay. Gig Harbor. Great. Yes. Federal Way? All right. Federal Way again. Awesome. It's great to have so many guests here today. After the service, of course, we have uh, Oneg, and uh, the visitors are always welcome to go through first with the uh, people that are elderly. But I want all the visitors to know if you're here for the first time, uh, we have a little glass pavilion outside the door. I also like to visit with the visitors a little bit uh, if you're here for the first time. Uh, to answer any questions you may have. We also have another visitor here today. I'm not sure if I see him at this moment, but Yisrael Stefanski from Israel is here today. Let's give him a big hand. And, uh, yes. Where from? Yo. Bremerton. Bremerton. All right, a long ways. But it's good to have Yersel Stefanski here. Uh, he's with Israel Support Fund as well as, I think, Proactive Global Security. Uh, when we do our tours to Israel, he also helps us with the tours. Uh, those of you that have been on tours know how fantastic of a man he is. And, uh, yes, give Yersel Stefanski a big hand and Israel Support Fund. Uh, he's the one that has set it up so we can help... Uh, give warm jackets and fleece hoods and gloves and all these kind of things to all the troops over there in Israel. And uh, how many of you have been to Israel here, the nation of Israel? How many of you enjoyed that and want to go back? Amen. It's awesome. Uh, those of you that have never been to Israel, uh, we'll be doing a trip this November. We highly recommend you sign up as soon as possible. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. We do a lot of adventurous things. Ours is not the normal tour. Those of you that have been with us know it's not your normal tour. And so I highly recommend those of you on the Internet. As a matter of fact, I think Israel told me earlier we have people from Australia coming uh, on this trip, Canada, different places. So we, you get to meet your, all your Internet friends from all over the world as well when you come on this trip. So if you've never been, you've got to come. If you want to wait for the free ride when Yeshua comes, you can do that too. But uh, in the meantime, you can always join us. But also, I also encourage people to donate to Israel Support Fund uh, to help them as they support uh, not only people that are victims of terrorist attacks, they go right into the homes and help the people avoiding all the red tape. And 100% of your donation goes directly to them. You can get to them through our website. Uh, and so we always appreciate the people, rather than donating to us and then give, us giving it to them, just give it directly to Israel Support Fund. We have a link on their website. All right. Is there any other announcements, Art? I may have forgotten. That's it. All right. Are you ready to begin? Yes. Let's go to the... Next part. All right, we are on Exodus chapter, it looks like 12, part of our Torah portion, and verse 14. And it says this, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, 
You'll keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, they have been told that their salvation from being killed by putting the blood on the doorpost, which they just experienced, must be commemorated via the memorial of the Passover Seder, okay, that they were to do every year in the future. Now, the word memorial is, in Hebrew, it's zikron, and it means like a memento. It means to mark it so that it can be recognizable, all right, to remember it. And we have the word uh, forever in Hebrew is olam. Now, let me put up this next clip. I have like an infinity symbol here, but evidently, uh, from what I've been told, the word olam doesn't necessarily mean infinity, eternity, like we often think in our own mind, but it means to the vanishing point, to point like almost a, another age or something along that line. But it means time out of mind. Practically, it means eternity, pretty much. Well, the, the single purpose of the Passover Seder is to transmit the story of God's redemption to the next generation. So let's go here. Now, if you remember, now this isn't in your verses, but everyone pretty much has it memorized anyway. Uh, but Leviticus 23 is the main text. Okay, and in Leviticus 23, where it talks about all the feasts, uh, it talks about the Lord's Passover. Okay, whose Passover is it? Okay, and when it's in the New Testament, it talks about the Lord's Supper. It's talking about the Lord's Passover. Okay, now we find in Luke 22, verse 19 and 20, we know that it... The Lord just got done saying, you're to do this as a memorial forever. And here it was already about 1,500 years later uh, when Yeshua is there. And he's taking the bread. He's giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it unto them saying, this is my body which is given for you. And then he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me because he is the Passover lamb. He says, likewise, also the cup after supper. So here you see there's more than one cup as we talked about last week. He said, this is the cup of the New Testament, my blood, which is shed for you. But here's what I want you to realize. Uh, I Believe it or not, I got a phone call this morning from India uh, right before the service. I was right here in the, uh, in the back in the lobby during the break. No, it was actually right before the service started. And uh, there was this question about the Lord's Supper. And people are saying that that replaced Passover. And I'm saying, no, <laughs> the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Passover. Uh, it is the very same thing. As a matter of fact, when you look at Luke 22, 19 and 20, when you go to the rest of the Bret Hadashah, Corinthians and things like that, we're going to look at in just a minute. It's always referring back to Luke, to the actual incident. So let's look at the actual incident. And in the context where he says, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. That's in verse 19 and 20. Well, let's look at verse 14 and 15 right before it. It says, when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It was, it was a Passover Seder. And when he said, do this in remembrance of me, believe it or not, he wasn't instituting a, a new uh, institution called communion. Okay? Uh, he was talking about the Passover. Now, this, look at 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. It's, Paul says here, your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, and you as you are unleavened. For even Messiah, who is our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, what does he say to do? He says, so let's keep this feast. He didn't say, let's start something new. 
He's saying we need to keep the feast of Passover, not with the old leaven, uh, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As a matter of fact, realize that's 1 Corinthians 5. In the same letter, chapter 11, he goes on to say, verse 26 through 30, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's what? Okay, so here he's talking about every Passover... When you commemorate the Lord's death, this is what you're doing. When you're at every Passover, when you take the Lord's cup, you take the bread, uh, you go through the whole Seder. He says, this is what you're doing. You're remembering the Lord's death. And then it says, wherefore, whosoever will eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let him eat of that bread, drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks uh, damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Uh, this is referring to the Passover Seder, not to some weekly communion thing. Uh, now, there's nothing wrong with taking communion. I just want to say that. If you guys want to take communion, that's fine with me. You can take, I mean, I was raised Catholic. They took it every day. Some people take it every week. Some people take it every month. Some people take it every quarter. It doesn't matter. You can take it whenever you want. But one thing I do recommend, if you're going to do it, don't use leavened bread, for heaven's sake. Use unleavened bread. All right. Uh, but but that was just a, something that was uh, not necessarily instituted in Scripture. That's a man-made tradition. But there's nothing wrong with some man-made traditions. So I'm saying there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, we do the Passover Seder every year. And that's what these verses really are referring to. And what's interesting, uh, when you look at Leviticus 23, as well as Passover, it says that it's to be done as a chukat olam, or an ordinance forever. What, you know what's amazing to me is the feasts of the Lord that he specifically designated as eternal statutes are basically the very statutes traditional Christianity has declared null and void. And, and so, I mean, I, all I'm saying is I don't mind people doing communion. But for heaven's sake, that doesn't mean we can throw out the feasts. And as a matter of fact, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 44, especially when you realize he's exalted his word above his name, look at... Ezekiel 44, here is when the Lord's returned. How many of you believe the Lord's coming back? Do you believe he's coming back? Listen to this. It says, Then he brought me back by the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looks toward the east, and it was shut. Okay? And then it says this, Then said the Lord to me, This gate will be shut, it will not be opened. No man will enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered in by it. Okay, this refers to a second coming. He's come in, he's gone through. And then it says, therefore, it's for the prince, the prince who will sit uh, in it to eat bread before the Lord. He'll enter by the way of the porch of that gate, go out by the way of the same. It says, then he brought me uh, the way of the north gate before the house. I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I fell on my face and the Lord said to me, son of man, mark well. And behold, with your eyes and ear and hear with your ears all that I'm telling you concerning all the ordinance of the house of the Lord. And all the laws thereof, and mark well the entering in of the house with everything going forth out of the sanctuary. Do you realize this is talking about the new temple that will be here when Yeshua comes and he rebuilds the temple? All of Ezekiel is talking about not the new heavens and the new earth. This is talking about the millennial reign, that Sabbath thousand year day of rest when Yeshua comes. And do you realize he's going to rebuild the temple? And there's going to be laws and ordinances in the temple while Yeshua is here. Okay, look at Ezekiel 45, verse 21 through 25. Look what, how many of you believe the Bible is the Word of God? How many of you believe Ezekiel belongs in the Bible? 
Okay. Now, as I always say, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reading what God said in Ezekiel concerning the millennial reign when he's here and the temple's rebuilt. How many of you know we can't fit our theology into the Bible? The Bible has to be our theology. Okay. Look at what it says here. In the first month, the 14th day of the month, you will have the Passover. We'll be keeping the Feast of Passover on the Feast of Passover every year during the millennial reign while Christ is here. All right, isn't that exciting? And it says, And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. And seven days of the feast he'll prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bullocks, seven rams without blemish, daily the seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. He'll prepare a meat offering of an ephah for a bullock and an ephah for a ram and a hen of oil for an ephah in the seventh month and the fifteenth day of the month, which is what? Sukkot, tabernacles. It says, until he do the like in the feast of the seven days, according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, according to the meat offering, and according to the oil. Do you realize we're going to be keeping the feast and there will be sacrifices during the millennial reign? This is shocking for a lot of people. But you have to, you can't just rip that out and say, I don't like that, that doesn't fit in my theology. You have to look at that and say, okay, guess what? Maybe there's something I don't understand. And so we have to go back and look at it. Oftentimes, we'll find in the scriptures, there's a verse here that seems to lean one way. There's another verse here that seems to lean the opposite way. And what they say is, look for the third verse that ties them to all together. I mean, this is why people were saying concerning Jesus, well, he's supposed to be called a Nazarene. You know, he's supposed to be from Nazareth. No, no, somebody else said he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. No, no, it says he's called out of Egypt. So they all were trying to put God in their own little box rather than realizing all of those were true. And so sometimes we have to realize, how many of you know, and the Bible says in the last days, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Well, that includes our theology. But I tell you what, I would rather it be shaken now when we have time to recoup and rebuild. Let me ask you something. How many of you remember the War of 1812? Can anyone tell me who the War of 1812 was fought between? Okay, what, I mean, what happened to our memories here of the War of 1812? Maybe there's a, a few historical people here that, uh, that might know what that was. But that didn't seem to have too much significance in the vast majority of people here. Okay. Is there anybody here who's in their 20s. Raise your hand if you're in your 20s. We have some 20-year-olds here. Okay. Do any of you 20-year-olds know who JFK is? Is there any 20-year-olds who don't know who JFK is? I don't know. I can't see some. But see, I mean, everyone's just different. How about 9-11? You guys remember 9-11? Okay. Do you, do you still maybe sometimes experience the emotions if you stop and think about it? Okay, these are different momentous events. But you know what's amazing to me is how so often some of these momentous events, they get lost in the next generation. Like the War of 1812, how many generations? I mean, that was only a couple hundred years ago. Well, this is 2012. It was exactly 200 years ago. And yet most of us are clueless about the War of 1812, right? Well, think about this. The Passover Seder is still going on 3,500 years later. This is a memorial event. When God says, I want this in your memory, believe me, he makes sure it's in your memory. This is exciting. I mean, this is, this is very significant. How come the Passover Seder has been kept so alive for 3,500 years? It's still relevant today. This, is, this tells you this has to be a God thing. It's a good thing the Jews kept the Passover for the last 1,500, 2,000 years. 
so those of us that are coming back into it can understand. I think it's not only a national reminder, the reason why it was passed on, but also it was because it was a personal reminder where we can escape our own personal Egypts. See, every year they were to imagine as if they were leaving Egypt. Even a thousand years later, the whole concept is I'm leaving Egypt. And that's what we need to realize for ourselves. In Exodus 12, 22 through 24, it talks about how you will take a bunch of hyssop and you're going to dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And you're going to strike the lintel and the two sides with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house till the morning, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts. The Lord will pass over the door. He will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you, and you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and to your sons for a couple months. No, forever. Now, let me show you this next clip. Right now, those of you that have been to a Seder know they dip parsley into salt water and eat the parsley. Everyone's familiar with that, right? Do you guys know why they dip the parsley into the salt water? So, see, that's one thing we need to know is the, some of the reasons why. Well, actually, there's more than one reason why. So let's look at, look at some of the, the meanings of this. As I said, there are very different levels of meaning. Some say the salt water represents... The tears, the bitter tears they endured while they were in Egypt. Others say the parsley represents the hyssop that was dipped into the basin of blood at the doorway and then used to apply. Let me go to this next clip here. Uh, so that's what some people say. The, the parsley represents the hyssop and the salt water represents the blood. So there's different levels of meaning. Well, I'm going to give you another level of meaning. <clears throat> and what is this? The parsley, uh, as you can see, it's called carpus, okay, in Hebrew. But do you know from what I found out from reading over some incredible Jewish material I, I like to read? They said the word carpus is actually a rare term that means vegetable, but it has another meaning as well. Carpus means more than just vegetable. You know, the normal Hebrew term for vegetable, and I may not pronounce it correctly, is yerek. In English, it'd be Y-E-R-E-K. So if, if yerek is the normal reason for vegetable, why is the word carpus used during the Passover Seder? I'm going to give you another place where carpus is used in your Bible so you can see the other meaning of it. But first, let's step back and look at Genesis 37.3. Here it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Okay, He made him a garment of many colors. I don't know how many of you have heard of Rashi, but here's where I'm getting this from. Rashi explains that the Hebrew words for a coat of many colors uh, also implies a fine wool cloak. Okay, so here it's just a fine wool cloak that was made of many colors. Now in Genesis 37, 31, if you remember, it says they took Joseph's coat of many colors, his garment, and what did they do? They killed the kid of the goats and they dipped his coat in the blood. Following me? If you jump to the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 6, you're going to see this word carpus. It says where there were white and green and blue hangings, the word there is carpus. And uh, what that means in Esther 1, 6, carpus is referring to a material that is hung uh, in this situation uh, as a decoration at the party of King Ahasuerus. Uh, so carpus actually means a garment. 
Okay, so here, the carpus, which is parsley or vegetable, but it's a rare term. How come yarrick wasn't used? And they say because the carpus also represents a garment, and it represents Joseph's garment that was dipped in blood before he was betrayed into Egypt, and the Passover is about all coming out of Egypt. And so it's reminding them it was their sale of Joseph that sent him into captivity. So in ancient times, the Jews would bring the Passover offering from the temple back to their tents by wrapping it in its skin and putting it over their shoulders like the Ishmaelite merchants. This was a reminder of the sin of the sale of Joseph by his brothers to the Ishmaelite merchants so that we remember the brothers dipping the cloak of Joseph in blood before showing it to their father. So they dipped the carpus or the parsley in salt water at the beginning of the Seder and at the Seder, we don't use the word yarek, the normal term for vegetable, but rather carpus, an unusual term, one that reminds us of the fine wool cloak of Joseph, his sale by his brothers, and this is the ultimate cause of our exile. And when you equate that to Yeshua, this is an incredible and profound statement. They say it was their treatment of Joseph was why they went into exile. I think it's the same thing with their treatment of Yeshua, why they've been into exile again for the last 2,000 years. It was the wool cloak that was dipped in blood. And what do we find in Revelation 19:13? Yeshua comes back, he's clothed with the vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is incredible. So, let's look at this next clip. Okay, what do you see there? Matzah. Let's look at Exodus 13, 1 through 3. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both the man and beast, it's mine. And Moses said to the people, I want you to remember this day. Now this day is Nisan 15, which begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, In which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out from this place. There shall be no leavened bread there be eaten. And then in Exodus 13, 7 through 9, it says, Unleavened bread will be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread will be seen among you, nor leavened bread seen among you in all your quarters. And then it says, And you are to tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It will be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's Torah may be in your mouth, for with the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. This is uh, the four children. As you know, just like the four cups, there are four traditional views of how the children, because we're supposed to teach our children about the Passover, how they view the Passover. You have the wicked son, and you have the wise son, the simple son, and the innocent son. Uh, it, this comes from uh, the first scripture verse, Exodus 12, 26 through 29. This is the words of the wicked son, basically. And it says, it'll come, and this is in our Torah portion. It says, it'll come to pass when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? In other words, this is all a bunch of hard work. Well, what's the purpose of all of it? Well, in Exodus 13, 8, you have another child. And he says, and you will show your son in that day, saying, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And in Exodus 13, 14, it talks about another son who asks you in the time to come, saying, what is this all about? And then in Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 24, we see this wise son who has a real good vocabulary. And he says, when your son asks you in the time to come, saying, what are the testimonies and the statutes and the judgment which the Lord our God has commanded you? 
And so they say for the wicked, the Passover tradition burns up as the relevance of Torah is destroyed. For the wise son, it's an open book to be read and studied. For the simple son, the word of God is an open book since he asks questions as looking for answers. And then the, for the innocent son, the Bible is a closed book waiting for someone to open it and to explain the relevance of redemption.